0: Welcome to a special edition of the Brookings Cafeteria, the podcast about ideas and the experts who have them. I'm Fred Dews. A new crisis has been unfolding over the past weeks between India and Pakistan. To help you understand what's been going on, what's new, and the road ahead, two Brookings experts had a conversation in the Brookings Podcast Network studio. They are Tanvi Madan, director of the India Project at Brookings and a fellow in Foreign Policy, and Joshua White, non-resident fellow in foreign policy at Brookings, and a professor at the Johns Hopkins University School of Advanced International Studies. The Brookings Cafeteria is part of the Brookings Podcast Network. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. And now, here's Tanvi.
1: Thanks, Fred. Um, Josh, tell us what has happened over the last two weeks.
2: The crisis began on February 14th when there was a very large attack on a a police convoy in Jammu and Kashmir, one of the largest attacks that's taken place in India um, in many years. And after that, there was a, a period in which people were wondering what the Indian government was going to do by way of response. People expected that the Indian government would do something because it has, beginning in 2016, set aside its longstanding policy of restraint uh, and then indeed, in uh, on February 26th this week, there was a really remarkable action undertaken by the Indian Air Force, uh, striking a site not in uh, Pakistan, um, Pakistani Kashmir, but in Pakistan proper, you could say, near the city of Balakot, that was said to target a, a training facility by Jayshin Mohammed, an Indian focused terrorist group. And after that, The crisis uh, spiraled upward. There were some uh, as yet still ambiguous but uh, dramatic uh, confrontations between the air forces yesterday in which at least one if not more uh, planes crashed and an Indian uh, wing commander was taken into uh, custody by the Pakistanis. Since then, Pakistan has pledged to release him. And the, con- the conflict seems to be de-escalating. But this represents one of the most uh, significant crises to take place uh, probably since the 2001-2002 standoff between India and Pakistan.
1: Just tell us a little bit about this group you mentioned, and Muhammad. Um, uh, what, is, uh, what is their goal? Where are they based? Why is this, a, why is this group a subject of concern not just for uh, the Indians uh, but here in the U.S. as well?
2: Well, when we look at the array of militant groups in Pakistan, it's a a large and complex playing field. And we usually segment these groups into ones which are sectarian groups focused on uh, the Shia communities, groups which are focused internally on challenging the Pakistani state, groups which have a transnational focus. And then the fourth category, those that are largely focused on carrying out a jihad against the Indian state – uh, and the groups in this latter category, mostly Jashi Mohammed, lashkar taiba and a few others, have uh, a history of interaction with the Pakistani state, if not sponsorship by the Pakistani state. Jashi Mohammed has been a little bit less active than others in recent years, but it has a, a long history of um, sponsoring jihadi attacks in Pakistan and has a, a significant presence in Bahawalpur. Uh, in Pakistani Punjab as well as other places around the country. It also has been known to have uh, history in the area around Balakot, which was the area struck by the Indian Air Force.
1: So one of the things we saw after the initial terrorist attack was India asking Pakistan or demanding that Pakistan take action um, against these terrorist groups. It was joined in this call by the US, France, other countries. Um, as well as uh, the a, UN, a statement from the UN Security Council. Um, what ha- What is Pakistan able to do at these groups? Pakistan has sometimes said we can't act or uh, they're not – sometimes they'll even say they're not quite uh, operating with the impunity that others have suggested. So tell us what could the Pakistanis do? Have we seen them doing – uh, things about taking on these groups in the past, whether um, it's this group or whether it's other groups who have, for, for example, targeted countries uh, like China.
2: You're right. We we have for years heard an array of excuses, uh, some more plausible than others, by the Pakistani state about why uh, it has not taken action against groups like Jayshin Mohammed. Um You know, some of the Pakistani excuses that uh, going after these groups would result in a backlash or that it doesn't have complete directive control over these organizations probably have some truth to them. But in taking a step back, it is clear to most people, uh, certainly to me, that Pakistan is uh, culpable for the recent crises like the one that has emerged because of its sustained unwillingness to take action against a group that has a permissive environment within its territory. We've seen again and again that on those occasions when the Pakistani state wants to take action against a militant group, like the Taliban Pakistan, the Pakistani Taliban, it is extremely effective at doing so. It uses um, propaganda, it cuts off finances, it uses the media, it uses the police and law enforcement agencies, it uses the military over a period of time, to degrade the capabilities of groups that it doesn't like. So we know what the template looks like. We have, I think, told the Pakistanis that they don't need to do this all at once, but that it should be obvious to us what progress looks like. And I think what the United States and India and many of its partners are looking for are real and tangible signs of that sort of implementation that we are confident Pakistan can do if it has the political will to do so.
1: So I'm of the view that one of the things, and I'm skeptical about the fact that um, this episode, and particularly the Indian uh, strike, airstrike, that this is going to kind of, or frankly, the, the the international pressure that we've seen on Pakistan, and we'll come back to that question, um, but that this is going to fundamentally change uh, the Pakistani view on these groups or the support for their operations or their presence at least. Um, do you agree or disagree? Or, and if you agree that it's not kind of going to fundamentally change this, what would it take for Pakistan to take, uh, to change its approach towards these group, groups? And, uh, you know, what would it take for them to take the kind of action that you have said is they are actually able to do?
2: I'm skeptical of the ability of the United States in particular to compel or coerce Pakistan to change this dimension of its foreign policy. Uh, Giving lots of money hasn't done it. Cutting lots of money in assistance hasn't done it. Uh, Threatening, cajoling, uh, increasing diplomatic ties, decreasing diplomatic ties hasn't had this effect. I think there are deeper structural reasons related to the role of the Pakistani army and its institution in the state and Pakistan's national ideology that drive this behavior. I do think that if other partners of Pakistan, like China and Saudi Arabia, decided to make a concerted effort to press Pakistan to cut off its um, support or the permissive environment that it allows for these groups, that might make some difference. But at the end of the day, I think it has to be a decision by the Pakistani elite and security elite to take action against these groups, to see them as a threat in the way that it has decided to see Al-Qaeda as a threat, the Pakistani Taliban as a threat, and other groups that have destabilized the state. I think J.G. Mohammed destabilizes the Pakistani state in uh, very clear ways, but that's not a view that the Pakistani establishment seems to hold at the moment
1: turn to kind of the Indian actions. Um, so over the last couple of weeks, we've seen them do a number of things in the diplomatic front, but uh, more kind of visibly uh, on the, the military front. What do you? How do you assess their actions? Uh, what do you think they could have done differently? Um, uh, how do you think um, the, the situation is going to play out in terms of what they're thinking about over the next few days?
2: One of the things about the fog of war is that we don't yet know precisely what transpired even over the last week. The Indians have claimed that their strikes on the training camp in Balakote were successful. The Pakistanis claimed they were unsuccessful. Uh, I wouldn't be surprised if the, uh, the ultimate assessment uh, is that the strikes were successful to the Indians in the sense that they demonstrated an ability to penetrate into the Pakistani state, but not very successful in terms of hitting actual infrastructure or killing militants. So we don't know exactly what happened. The ball is certainly in the Indian court at the moment. And I think the Indian leadership has to make a decision with elections looming imminently, whether they want to decide to frame what has transpired as a win and move on, or uh, whether they consider other options to escalate or to retaliate.
1: I think, you know, this question has come up repeatedly is what role has the fact that in terms of the Indian political landscape, we are just a few days before elections will be announced. This is the the general elections, the national elections that are due uh, over April and May. Um, And this is the, the kind of obviously the first general election after 20, the ones in April, May 2014, when Prime Minister... Uh, Modi, uh, then-candidate Modi, um, won a uh, large majority in the Indian parliament. Um, th- this question has come up, which is how, what kind of role it's played. And I, 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 I'm I, of the view that, yes, it has played the kind of role people have talked about, which is the need to show uh, or demonstrate that such attacks won't go unanswered. Uh, and a precedent, to some extent, was created in September 2016, um, after there was an attack on a military facility, Indian military facility, uh, by again a Pakistan-based terror group um, in Uri, uh, and after that, the government conducted so-called a so-called surgical strike um, against what they call launch pads uh, in around in and around the line of control that separates uh, the parts of Kashmir that Pakistan and India have, and. Um, one of the things uh, that that president created is a, a need to, to kind of demonstrate that either India was going to do something similar, at least for political reasons, or uh, something uh, more, which is what we've seen now. But I think the elections play another kind of more tempering, um, uh, uh, kind of uh, they are tempering as well in a way, because I think no politician, and particularly one like Prime Minister Modi, who likes to control the narrative and the situation, you don't want to go into a situation like an escalating crisis, where you cannot control because of the number of factors involved, plus you don't quite shape the, and control the decision-making of your adversaries. You can't control the situation. You don't know how it's going to play out. And so you, you do want to demonstrate, but you also don't want this to uh, go out of control, particularly for a set of voters who largely vote on the basis of economic issues. Um, something that hasn't quite been discussed, but I think once the dust settles, uh, and hopefully it will uh, fairly soon, is that these are, if this had kind of escalated the impact on the Indian economy, uh, we already saw the stock market reacting to it. So I do think the elections have played kind of a role in both senses and not just um, in one or the other. Um, I want to talk a little bit about kind of the U.S. response. And just to outline what has happened uh, what we've seen from the U.S., and I'll talk about kind of the visible aspect of what we've seen um, after the initial uh, after the initial uh, terrorist attack, we saw um, the, the first the U.S. ambassador to India, then the State Department, uh, but then uh, statements also from uh, National Security Advisor Bolton, who had talked to his counterpart as well as Secretary of State Pompeo, and they condemned the uh, attack unequivocally, uh, named Pakistan. Uh, terrorist groups and, uh, as being responsible, uh, or at least noting their claim of responsibility, um, and also calling on Pakistan uh, to do more uh, and to take action against these, these groups. Um, this, what we didn't see, is what we used to see historically, and I don't mean in the last kind of uh, uh five or six years, but in the la- before the last decade, which was these kind of statements used to have calls for dialogue or de-escalation almost immediately or calls for restraint on the part of India. We didn't see that uh, this time. We didn't see it, for that matter, in September 2016 in the U.S. response either. Um, Subsequently after that, um, following the Indian, Indian, um, and we do know that there was communication and coordination between the U.S. and India and U.S. and Pakistan in terms of uh, uh, not coordination but kind of pressure behind the scenes, But we do know about the communication and coordination uh, from countries like the U.S.-France at the U.N. Security Council in getting a statement out, but also in terms of the Financial Action Task Force where they were trying to keep Pakistan the gray list, though what India wanted was a blacklisting of Pakistan. They didn't manage to get that. Um, But we did see kind of behind-the-scenes work on that, or at least we've seen the result or the outcome of that. And then we've seen, I think... Um, since then, since the uh, Indian airstrike, um, it's almost a dog that didn't bark, which is we didn't see condemnation from the U.S. Um, and we, we did see kind of calls for restraint on both sides um, after that, which is uh, after the in- initial uh, initial airstrike. And since then, um, since kind of the airstrike itself, uh, and then particularly after the Pakistani Indian Air Force is kind of engaged, uh, we've seen kind of a more visible set of uh, statements. We've also seen um, that there has been pretty senior level communications within the interagency uh, on this front. Um, But largely we have still seen calls for action from Pakistan and calls from restraint uh, on both sides. Um, That is kind of what we've seen so far. Uh, Josh, you've been, uh, served in an administration, you were in the Obama administration, uh, and you were there when uh, a couple of such incidents happened um, one in kind of early 2016, if I'm not mistaken, at the in at, the, at a military base in Patan Court, and then uh, later that year in September, um, against the 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 uh, the facility in the Indian facility in Uri. Talk us through you were at the National Security Council. You were director for South Asia. Talk us through uh, when such an incident happens and there is a pressure to respond, and once the Indians respond, what? What goes on in uh, the in an administration in terms of how it's going to react?
2: Tony, that's a that's a great question. I've been having a lot of flashbacks over the course of this week, although they're tempered by the fact that I'm I'm sleeping much better this week than when I was at the White House a few years ago. I would say that um, when there's a crisis brewing like this, India-Pakistan crisis, the administration will be doing at least five things. Sometimes. In parallel. The first is trying to ramp up information sharing with India as rapidly as possible, figure out what we know, what we can see, and what we can share. This has been accelerated by the deepening US India partnership. Uh, and that partnership is extends to law enforcement, counterterrorism, and of course intelligence cooperation. The second thing that we would be doing is mapping the best relationships that we have within the U.S. government to reach out to interlocutors in India and Pakistan? Who at the cabinet level, who at the White House, who uh, and, and at our embassies have the best relationships to be able to engage? Uh, I think that's been a bit more challenging with this administration given the uh, high volume of turnover, and the number of people in an acting capacity, but this is a, a critical second question. The third is thinking about allies and other influencers who can deliver messages. Historically, we've prioritized engaging the UK, which has deep ties to India and Pakistan and spends a lot of time thinking about crisis management in the subcontinent, but also the Chinese um, and uh, members of the Security Council, uh, both, both permanent and those who are on the council at the moment. Uh, the fourth is that we spend a lot of time trying to watch what we call the indications and warning data very closely to understand when low-level escalation might increase to more troubling forms of uh, military confrontation. In particular, there's a lot of attention given to to watching for the uh, movement of conventional military forces that could signal a transition from an airstrike or a ground incursion to something that involves a much larger force-on-force movement, which could be difficult to walk back by either side. And the fifth is to begin thinking about tailored messages to both parties. Uh, Are we calling for restraint by both parties? Are we... Uh, assigning some blame or in- indicating some judgment about attribution. Um, I think what's interesting about uh, the 2016 incident and then the one that just transpired is that in both cases, now twice in a row, the United States has, in a sense, winked at India's uh, retaliatory strikes, first the so-called surgical strike and this time an airstrike. And after having done so, after having watched those retaliations, has then come out with the language urging uh, restraint by both sides. This is a calculated decision. It is one that involves a sort of tailored uh, message and uh, a way of of ascertaining risk uh, that India for its own purposes feels like it needs to retaliate. The United States understands that to some extent, but does not want to see escalation after that point. So I think that reflects some of the tailored messages that have evolved um, from the United States. And we can talk about some of the, the politics and the risk of that particular set of, of messages, but, uh, but I think it should be seen as an intentional uh, mode of signaling.
1: And one of the interesting things is uh, it's not just the U.S. and as you alluded to earlier, kind of the Chinese, the Saudis. Uh, we've seen kind of different, uh, uh, different in- reactions from a number of different countries, and we've seen countries like France and Australia who've taken on taken a similar position to the U.S. Um, in fact, even kind of going even further in their public statements after the. Indian airstrikes, essentially suggesting that India had the right to do so, or they taken cognizance of it, but going out of their way to not condemn the attack. Um, but these are countries who, like the US, has interests in a relationship with um, with India, a close partnership with India, and doesn't. That's not necessarily kind of the goal uh, with their relationships, at least with Australia and France, with Pakistan. But you've also seen. Uh, China, which is uh, a, a very close um, friend, a partner, if not ally, of Pakistan's, um, obviously be concerned about this. Um, and uh, they, this is not a partnership they're going to give up. They've actually, um, in some ways, are a party to this issue because they've the, the head of J- the Jaish Mohammed Muhammad group, Masood Azhar, there have been Indian and American and French efforts to kind of get him uh, designated as a terrorist at the UN – uh, Security Council, and and the Chinese have been blocking that. Um, but they have also, this would not have made them happy, despite the fact that uh, Pakistan is an ally. Uh, but perhaps because of it, because they have their own interests uh, with India as well, they've been trying what's at least, co- what's called a reset, which is a lowering of temperature. But because they have broader interests in terms of the competition with the U.S., they don't want to see an India that goes entirely along with the U.S. line. And so I think this was come for at an awkward time for them, and we did we saw them again not condemn the Indian action at least not yet we might see it uh, later, and I suspect uh, that they would have been behind the scene urging for Pakistan. We don't know this, um, but uh, that they wouldn't have they would don't want to see this escalate out of proportion. They now have of course, uh, which they didn't used to have before. Uh, a number of citizens and facilities and investments in Pakistan, which should, would have been implicated as well. But We've also seen the Saudis, um, who again, we saw uh, Mohammed bin Salman in both Pakistan and India after the uh, attack, uh, after the initial terrorist attack. And he has many interests, the Saudis have many interests with India as well, because of India being an oil market, as well as a place where the Saudis have invested or want to invest heavily. And that these, these countries are playing kind of these roles um, as well. And so it's something to watch. I think in some ways um, the U.S. and there have been, they've been, uh, been sources, we don't know which side, but we've, been, we've heard from a number of sources uh, telling reporters that it has been kind of the U.S. and France that have been helping India at the U.N. Security Council, Financial Action Task Force, uh, but the, and also pointing out that the Chinese have been the ones being difficult, And that's obviously to to gain some uh, uh, brownie points in India and ensure that the Chinese role in this has been highlighted. Um, So it's kind of interesting how this is all playing out and showing different relationships. I think this also highlights uh, for India why it's important, and this will be the argument made within, to keep engaging China, uh, not kind of accommodating, but engaging them because they need the Chinese to exercise some leverage. Uh, on Pakistan as well, Josh. Tell us as we as we think about these uh, issues. I mean, the other element that we're thinking about, not just kind of the U.S., India, China, Pakistan, Saudis. Um, we haven't even talked about the Russians, who've been quite silent. And there was finally a Putin-Modi call, but uh, the read, the Indian readout doesn't mention any mention of either Jesh and Muhammad or Pakistan. So it's kind of been interesting. But there's another kind of issue where this does have implications, and that's or potentially has implications. Afghanistan, uh, while this has been playing out, uh, there have been efforts to have peace talks, uh, but also that they, there's a U.S. desire. The goal for those, or what's been driving those peace talks, is the U.S. desire to draw down. Tell us how you think. Uh, we do know it's factored into, you know, the Russian response, for example, uh, in terms of this this kind of. Uh, some amount of hesitation to say very much to upset the Pakistanis in this case, even though they're very, used to be historically, still are, uh, close to the Indians. Tell us, though, how does this, how do you think this will play in terms of U.S. thinking about how to react to this crisis? How does this Afghanistan situation, um, uh, how is it shaping it, and what are the implications for this in the future?
2: The Pakistanis believe that they have some leverage with the United States because of President Trump's apparent interest in drawing down our presence in Afghanistan rapidly and decisively. Uh, The Pakistanis are probably not wrong about that. Uh, It probably is the case that given the president's priority in uh, scaling down our presence in Afghanistan, um, it makes it less likely that the United States would respond uh, dramatically, harshly, with pressure on Pakistan after this incident. But I think the United States is is unlikely to do so in a a very serious way for other structural reasons. Uh, The fact that it's not clear that we have any uh, compelling way of changing this dimension of Pakistan's foreign policy behavior. Um, But I do think that Pakistan has been modestly helpful in the last couple of months in supporting the peace process um, that Ambassador Khalil Saad is leading and it's my view that even though Pakistan's role in Afghanistan has often been counterproductive uh, pernicious and even at times uh, very dangerous to the United States and India, any peace agreement in Afghanistan that Pakistan is not comfortable with is uh, a peace agreement that is probably a waste of our time because Pakistan is a neighbor, it has serious equities, and it will spoil anything that it finds to be inimical to its own interests. So it's very much in our interests, and I think in the interests of the Afghan people, to have Pakistan looped into these talks, even if doing so makes our Indian friends um, understandably uncomfortable. I think it's, in fact, a a necessity in Pakistan's role in that process as it's unfolding simultaneously with this crisis uh, probably as a as a practical matter, insulates them somewhat from a more uh, draconian you know, U.S. and international response.
1: Josh, one of the things we've seen a lot of kind of debate about, and um, I think we we might be able to judge this in hindsight better, but we've seen a debate about kind of the significance of what's happened over the last couple of weeks in terms of kind of India and Pakistan, in terms of the relationships the effect this might have on relationships, um, you know, escalation, uh, not just today, but in, in future crises, etc. cetera. Um, this debate about what is really, what is significant about these last couple of weeks? What has changed? What's not? Um, what is your sense of the significance? And particularly, have these two weeks and, and uh, we don't know, we, we're, we're going to watch and wait and see how they, this plays out. Um, but, from what we know now, what would you say has changed about our thinking, uh, or this should change about our thinking, or, and what is, hasn't changed?
2: I think a few things remain um, constant, or this, this crisis reminds us of some, some constant factors. One is that there will continue to be provocations in the form of militant attacks uh, linked to groups in Pakistan. I don't see any end to that in the near term and that India is going to have to find ways to respond or to insulate itself or make itself resilient to them. The second is that the United States remains the default crisis broker in the subcontinent, even though other countries like China and Saudi Arabia, um, perhaps in the future could play a more significant role. It does fall to the the United States. Um, But I, I think some of the key lessons for us. you know, One is that uh, India and Pakistan are, on any given day, either the first or second most likely nuclear flashpoint in the world, depending on what's happening in Korea at any given moment. And this crisis should remind us that even though Indians and Pakistanis tend to say they're very sanguine about their ability to understand each other's deterrent signals and red lines and, and get out of, of the escalation cycles that they've gotten themselves into, Uh, It's apparent even from the events of this week that we shouldn't be quite so optimistic, that both countries can easily stumble into escalating conflict, they can misread each other's signals, and that this should worry us quite a lot. The other thing that I think is quite significant from this week is that the Indian response, the strike at Balakot, represents a ratcheting up of a minimum baseline of response that in a way will constrain the future actions of the Indian state politically uh, in ways that I think should also be concerning to all of us who care about stability in this part of the world. The Indians for years had a policy of of restraint, of taking the blows and not uh, fighting back that had a certain logic to it. Um, It was difficult to sustain politically. After Uri in 2016, there was a cross-border surgical strike of the kind that may have taken place prior, but this time it was publicized. And then with this most recent action, uh, India raised the threshold even further. And I think that the next time there is a provocation, and there will be a next time, this makes it very difficult for the Indian state to do do nothing in response, and retaliation. It makes it difficult for them to undertake only a shallow incursion. It raises the stakes. In ways that make uh, escalation and the misreading of signals all the more likely in the future. That is a calculation that the Indians have made, that the United States has, uh, to some extent, implicitly supported. But I think this also raises the specter in future conflicts, the challenges that the United States is going to face, not only in managing and trying to shape the Pakistani response, but in trying to. Shape the nature of the Indian response. India is a friend, uh, maybe even a pseudo ally in today's global environment. And it's difficult to shape the response of friends. But I think the United States will increasingly have an interest in ensuring that the Indian retaliation to provocations are perhaps done in a way that is cathartic, but not in a way that continues to ratchet up the severity of response in a way that could um, create further escalatory problems in the subcontinent and, frankly, challenges for the U.S.-India relationship, which people in this town see as a key element of our wider strategic approach uh, across the Indo-Pacific.
1: Finally, Josh, um, what would you look for in the week ahead Um, in terms of this, this crisis in particular? What are you watching for?
2: There seems to be a trend toward de-escalation. Uh, the Pakistani promise to return the the wing commander. Um, I think uh, in particular because the ball is seen to be in India's court. We'll be watching for signals after presumably the return of the wing commander that India considers the score to have been settled favorably on its terms. And, uh, that will be the most important thing to watch for. And then I think secondarily, watching how the international community comes together uh, at the UN um, or in other fora to decide whether there's going to be any wider effort to isolate Pakistan, to, um, if you will, punish Pakistan for its, uh, at the very least, its negligence um, in, this, in this case. Um, that latter part is unclear because the energy surrounding the crisis can dissipate rather quickly. And again, the United States is going to be focused, I think, rather quickly on uh, returning to the most pressing matter at hand, which is its negotiations with the Taliban over the future dispensation of Afghanistan. Uh, Those factors together may mean that the follow-up by the international community is, is less than India would like or that many people in Washington would like but that it falls along to the wider strategic priorities um, outlined by these countries. Uh,
1: thank you, Josh, and stay tuned. Um, we, you can take a look at um, uh, our Twitter kind of handles, uh, which will probably be, we can make sure they're in the uh, notes, um, uh, as well as uh, on the Brookings website where any articles that we and other colleagues who are writing on this uh, would have posted. Thanks again, Josh.
2: Thank you.
0: The Brookings Cafeteria Podcast is the product of an amazing team of colleagues, including audio engineer and producer Gaston Reveredo, with assistance from Mark Holscher. The producers are Chris McKenna and Brennan Hoban. Bill Finan, director of the Brookings Institution Press, does the book interviews. And Jessica Pavone and Eric Abelohan provide design and web support. Our intern this semester is Quinn Lucas. Finally, my thanks to Camila Ramirez and Emily Horn for their guidance and support. The Brookings Cafeteria is brought to you by the Brookings Podcast Network, which also produces Dollar and Cents, the Brookings Trade Podcast, Intersections, Five on 45, and Our Events podcasts. Email your questions and comments to me at bcp at brookings.edu. If you have a question for a scholar, include an audio file, and I'll play it and the answer on the air. Follow us on Twitter at Policy Podcasts. You can listen to the Brookings Cafeteria in all the usual places visit us online at brookings.edu. Until next time, I'm Fred Dews.